Peter has some pretty strong words for us today in this epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, and he grabs my attention in verse 7 where he says, the end of all things, the end of all things is at hand. Well, that'll grab our attention. We live in such a moment just concentrating on what's before us, thinking about could we make it to the evening where we can rest or maybe the weekend. If I could just get a day off, if I could have some vacation, thinking about the future and what we want in leisure. But Peter says, oh no, you need to be thinking way more seriously than that. The end of all things is at hand. Resets us, doesn't it? makes ball games kind of dissipate in the background it's a good dissipation the end of all things is at hand look at verse 7 therefore be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Here's where I'm going with this message. Christians show their understanding that the end has actually already begun when they are self-controlled, spiritually alert, prayerful and demonstrate enduring love for one another that's when we know that we live with this notion the end is at hand when these things are here are you expecting Jesus to return today do you have an expectation that this day Christ may return and the way we answer that question truthfully will actually navigate how we are going to live life today because if you're not believing that Jesus is coming back today then you may live today very differently than he inclines for you or me to do so he wants us to recognize the end has already begun that we're, we're in the midst of it. So Peter says the end of all things is at hand. So we should allow that reality to affect our living. It should be the, the oomph in our living. It should be the purpose of our living. Certainly the unction. Now before you dismiss that reality that the end of all things is hand... Let me assure you that every generation before us has thought uh, the end is at hand. And if you're thinking that this preacher is going to name the day in which the Lord is coming back, you're mistaken. This preacher is not going to do that. The scripture is pretty clear about not even attempting that. But I will drive you to the point of the truth of the passage that this is not a chronological end that Peter is talking about. The word in the original language language tell us is not a chronological word it's translated end but it really means it's the conclusion of it's the realization of a goal it's what has been moving been moved towards to accomplish and in that he is saying the conclusion is at hand the goal is at hand it's here so what is this conclusion? Well, the conclusion obviously is what all history has been moving toward, the redemption of mankind. 
the recreation of, of all things that have been so affected by sin that it is now at hand. The conclusion of all that is at hand. The redemption is here. We're in the midst of it. In other words, Jesus has already completed everything that is necessary for this to be at an end. The conclusion. Therefore, there is nothing that is required of the period of redemption for the accomplishment of Christ Jesus has already been completed. He has already accomplished. And so the end is at hand. Now, rather than pointing to the future about what might transpire in order for the Lord to return, Peter actually takes a look backward and says, hey, let me just remind you of everything that has already occurred. Already there has been the creation and the fall of that creation and the atoning work of God covering the sin of Adam and Eve. There's already been a covenant promise made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the extension of that. There's the exodus in the kingdom of Israel and, of course, the exile period. And then the Messiah's birth, his first advent, has already been accomplished. His life, death, burial, and resurrection done. The ascension into glory already happened. The glorious day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God came to indwell mankind already here. So Peter is taking a look back at all that has already transpired and he says in a conclusive way, the end is already here. The completion, all that is needed for redemption to be fully met is already accomplished by Christ we're at the final curtain the end is already at hand so he concludes that every promise necessary every provision required of God has already been met in Christ Jesus the goal is succeeded now, since Peter is writing, in his, in his writings, writing to Christians, you and I need to recognize he's writing to a church-age Christian. And you and I know that Christians living in the church age live in the season in which the Lord will return again. There is not another season for which is coming. So Peter rightly concludes the end is at hand. The end has already begun. We live in the age of the end and he wants us to elevate that truth in our lives so that we might think correctly, we might live correctly, and have purposefulness in our lives correctly. Now, no one knows when Jesus Christ is going to return, but the end of the age, we know that. We conclusively know. and now we simply await his return we're waiting for his coming again now some might ask well why is it that the Lord is not coming on now I can't tell you how many times Kay has told me I prayed again today that the Lord would come back today I get that when you've lost people that you love temporarily and you go through the hardships of this life, the calamity, the sickness, the disease, the pain, the despair, the sorrow, the rumors of wars and the warring fractions around the country and all around the world, I get, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Why has he not already come? Why is he slow? Uh, Peter will answer that question in the next epistle, which we'll get to, 
But he says in the second epistle, in chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You wonder why the Lord hasn't come back already? Because he is patiently longing for people to come into his kingdom to walk in repentance, to walk in the new way of life. That's the only reason why he's tearing. So from eternity past, before the foundation of the world was ever put in order, God planned redemption. As history was unfolding, so did God's redemptive plan, the conclusion of which is at hand, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we know that Christ reigns and based on his victorious resurrection, he reigns and he will return to judge, as Peter says, the living and the dead and establish his dominion forever. So with confidence and enthusiasm, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. So here's, here's where we're launching the rest of this text. God established redemptive history and the conclusion of that history is now at hand. Everything necessary for this to be concluded, the goals have already been achieved. We're just waiting for the return of Christ. So Peter just didn't make a statement about history, did he, when he says the end is at hand. Instead, he's calling us to live differently than others because we recognize we actually are living in redemptive history. We live in this age. So with the remaining days of redemptive history drawing to a conclusion, Peter is saying, hey, Meadowbrook, live purposefully. If you're in this season, this historical season of redemption, live purposefully knowing that the days are at hand. Today is October the 16th. If on November the 16th, one month from today, you knew that Jesus was returning, would your life be lived for the next 30 days differently? If you knew one month from today, on November the 16th, Jesus is returning, would you live differently? Would your purposes be different? Would your conversations be different? Would your lives' ministries be different? What would it be if you knew he was coming in one year? Would you be different? Would the things that you are engaged in be different? What if it was five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Here's what Peter is saying. Does it matter? Of course he's coming again. Uh, by the way, if you're pushing this thing out to 30 years, then I can guarantee the majority of us in this room will be before him within 30 years. It's coming. I don't know when the Lord is coming. I do know this, that he says that we are in this season and all of us will stand before him. We ought to be mindful of that truth that Today and every day until his coming again, we ought to consider what are we to do with the days remaining since the day is at hand. The end of all things is here. We're in the concluding season of redemptive history. Now, Peter gives some pretty clear instructions in chapter 4. 
we kind of sprang forward a little bit last week into verse 10 and 11, but as we dial back in verse 7, you see that he says, here's what we ought to be doing, knowing that the end of all things is at hand. We ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded. We ought to be prayerful. We ought to love one another earnestly. We ought to be hospitable. And we ought to serve one another, managing the gift that God has given. It's part of his very grace to the church. Manage that gift in a way by serving other people. That's what we ought to be doing. It's a big deal. So if you're one to mark in your Bible, you might just put a bracket right there at verses 7 through 11. Because if you want to know what God expects us to be doing in this last season of redemptive history, there it is. Bracket that, circle that, star that, put a directional error there and say, Randy, do this. And that's what Peter is saying to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Knowing that the days are completed of redemptive history and we're just waiting for the Lord's return, Randy, this is what you and Meadowbrook ought to be doing. So let's concentrate on that for a moment. Now we focused on verse 10 and 11 last week. We're going to concentrate on verse 7 through 9. And here's what I think we ought ought to zoom in on understanding the end has begun live self-controlled and sober-minded live self-controlled and sober-minded so what he's saying there is live soundly Christians live soundly be clear in thought be clear-headed be clear-intentioned Live soundly in contrast to what much is going on in the lives today of people around us in the culture. He's saying live very differently, be self-controlled, and be sober-minded. You know, the end of the month is the most ridiculously silly portion of the life of Western culture that I know of, Halloween. You've got a pagan practice, a pagan cultural practice that is filled with occult Activities that God says absolutely have nothing to do with that if you're part of me. And the world just comes unhinged in the West. Have you noticed that? Adults dress up in silly little costumes. They have silly little games. And they have silly little parties. Here's what the Bible is saying. You and I need to be thinking differently because the day is at hand What are you saying, Randy? You can't have parties? You can't have fun? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you better be very intentional about everything you're thinking and doing because the day is at hand and Christ may return today. Are you affecting people around you unto the glory of Christ or are you going to affect them unto the culture antichrist? Which are you doing? Sober-minded, clear-headed, Thinking intentionally, thinking purposefully, self-controlled. This is where the scripture is taking us to live in this way. Now look, there's a lot of things that might distract us and there's nothing inherently evil to a lot of those including politicians and finances and careers and sports and leisure and entertainment and all those kind of things. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're not inherently evil But these things have have a, a way of capturing our attention and making us think and dwell on them, taking our sight off of what is eternal. 
And Peter is saying, wait, wait, wait. Knowing the end has already begun, you and I need to be thinking differently. We need to be thinking sober-mindedly. We ought to be living self-controlled and be watchful. In fact, I think this is where he's bringing us to conclusion in the beginning part of this. Have a holy watchfulness and pursuit of things eternal. So you can do all those things, but do it in a way that is watchful, a holy, watchful attitude, a, an eternal perspective on things. We should constantly be asking ourselves, now wait, in light of eternity, what does this mean? In light of eternity, what I'm about to say, does it matter? In light of eternity, what I'm about to do is it magnifying unto the glory of Christ? Is it helpful to people to recognize the eternal life that Christ wants them to have in him? The allurement of the world, that which is good or that which is evil, distracts us from this matter of fact, the end of all things is at hand. The world has a very, very... Um, way of just grabbing our attention distracting us from what is eternal and Peter is saying it ought not be that way you need to know the end is at hand all right look I'm not asking for anybody to turn into a weirdo some of us are already there I get that that's all right I'm not looking to transform anybody else into weirdoism uh, weirdos just sitting around and doing nothing, just waiting on Christ to return again. I'm not asking for that. In fact, the scripture is pretty clear about people who were doing that. Don't do that. Get back to work. That's what the Bible said. Because it's at work you'll have your greatest impact. It's at work that you actually can have conversation with people and bear forth the image of Christ to people, not with just your words, but with your attitudes and your actions, the manner in which you do work. So he says, get back to work. Don't be a weirdo. Don't sell all that you have and just live on the, the means of what you've sold and wait for Christ to return. But you ought to be thinking purposefully about Christ returning, planning every day and every moment, knowing with sobriety and with self-control that this is the season by which Christ will return. So every moment of every day has an eternal significance to it. Think in that way. Uh, if you have been dividing out the secular and the sacred, he says, don't do that anymore. Everything is sacred. Every moment is a holy moment. You live in a season of redemptive history that is coming to conclusion, and you're, you're by God's grace, the people who he chose to be living in this last season of redemptive history. Live for the moment of eternity. Live in that moment. Be clear-headed and understand that we're a day closer today than we were yesterday of standing before Christ and he will give wonderful rewards for those who are faithful and obedient to him, for those who live in this way. Know that this life in which we live has an eternal perspective to it. Certainly the world is constantly trying to lure us to concentrate on the things that are temporary. And here Peter is saying, no, no, no. Think about things that are eternal. Sober-minded believer understands that what happens today matters eternally. 
boy, I wish I could just treasure that. I, I wish that was the very navigation of every day. But if I am not consciously thinking this way, it just sort of evaporates. That every moment of every day has eternal impact. Oh God, help me to register that. Let it be cemented in my thoughts. Let it be the intention of my heart. The way I relate to K has an eternal perspective to it. Eternal consequences, the way I treat my body has eternal consequences. The words that I say from my mouth is eternally significant. The things that I watch with my eyes is eternally significant. The way in which I do things is eternally significant. Oh, God, help us to seize that truth. Because I have a tendency like you to just kind of get wayward and to get caught up in the current of the temporary and the treasures of tomorrow and fail to navigate my mind intentionally to the hope of eternity and the reward that Christ will give. Anybody else needing God to just help you to seize that truth? Oh, Peter is so wanting to help us to do that. Knowing the end is at hand, he says as well, be prayerful. Be prayerful. A Christian who anticipates the Lord's return is a prayerful one. I couldn't help but think back on the first advent of the Lord as we're looking for the second advent. What was, what was going on in the first? I tell you, there was a whole lot of stuff that was treasured in people's hearts that was very temporary, including religion, the practice of religion that really had little eternal significance. It was all about the moment and the day and the appearance and and being seen and, and all of that, it was, it was all fleshly, very little heart changing. And Jesus, of course, came to change all that, to, to bring real hope and life to people. But there were a few. They were ready. Can't help but think of Simeon. Simeon, who had been longing for the first advent, the, the coming of the Messiah, he had longed for that. And when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus there to dedicate him, commit him to the Father, Simeon was there waiting. He was a righteous and devout man who was waiting on the Lord. There's no doubt that he spent his time in the temple praying and worshiping. And at the same time, there was another person in the temple area. Her name was Anna. She was a prophetess, and she had lived the majority of her life all of her adult life basically there in the temple she didn't depart day or night she was praying and fasting waiting on the Lord's advent they were prayerful while they were waiting which causes me and you to think for a moment if the second advent is coming and we are in the season of his coming how prayerful am I is my life engaged in a prayerful way like those who were anticipating the first advent? Is my life waiting for the second advent of Christ indicative of that waiting because of the prayerfulness of my heart? Am I practicing prayer? So as the Messiah is certainly going to come in this season in which we live, the redemptive history season for which we live in the church age, we ought to be pausing and reflecting, Lord... 
why am I not on my knees more? That sort of begs a question. When's the last time you were on your knees in prayer? There's a real intentionality when we get on our knees, isn't there? I'm not talking about laid back on your pillow thinking about prayer. I'm talking about when's the last time you got on the floor because you recognized the reverence of the holy God you were about to speak to and you just needed to get down and pray. Somebody who knows the season is at hand, the end of all things has already begun, that individual is on her knees or his knees in prayer. It's not possible to think that the Lord is coming today and not be in prayer. Those go hand in hand. It's the way it, it is in Scripture. It's the way it is today. On this 16th day of October, 2022. So do you see a correlation between prayer and your givenness to the kingdom of God? I can tell you when I have been given to the kingdom of God, I have been given in prayer. And when I have allowed the kingdom of God to dissipate in the background of my life, except for Sundays, then I am not very given to prayer. It's an indicator, isn't it? Now, I'm not meaning to bring conviction on you. That's the Holy Spirit's job. If he's doing that, then uh, that's part of his love and grace to you because he wants to transform your heart, my heart, our attitudes, our actions, because he knows where the blessings are. So if you're sensing that, God, he is so true, he's so right. Why are you on me like this? Why is he on me? Why is he looking at me? If you're thinking any of that, that's God's love for your life. I'll point you out if you want me to. <laughs> Talking about you. <laughs> Thank God that he wants us to be in prayer. You know what that is? That's he saying, man, I've been missing you. I want my heart and your heart to be in sync. And the way that happens is on your knees in prayer. So prayer is an indicator of your anticipation of the Lord's return. And prayer is indicative of the progress you're making being self-controlled and being sober-minded. Are you self-controlled? It's part of the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Are you self-controlled? Are you sober-minded, clear in your thinking, thinking about the reality of this season of redemptive history? Then prayer is an indicator of that. All right, so we can trail backwards and say, if we are not praying, then it's probably that we are not very self-controlled and not very clear thinking, not sober-minded. So, oh God, please, with the work of your Spirit, transforming me help me to be self-controlled and lord help me to think knowing that in the redemptive history of all of time you've chosen me to live in this church age the very age that you'll come again and let it be evident in my prayer to you now take a look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 again. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So having disciplined minds that carries, uh, that clearly understands the age for which we live will impact your prayers. Uh, Peter struggled some in his prayer life. Maybe you remember this. It's, um, it's a pretty trying time for him. Jesus had longed to spend the evening, the feast, with 
Peter and the others. And on this particular night, he really longed for it because on this night, it would be a culmination of a lot of teaching that his body would be broken for them and his blood would be shared for them. This night was different. There was a lot of energy moving to that evening, a lot of energy and effort to the meal that transpired there, and there was some unrest in the midst of that. Peter saw Judas and Jesus in a very tense conversation, and Judas left angry. He left mad, and you could tell that there was real tension in the air. And yet at the same time, there was a was a sense of joy and peace and contentment in Christ as he led them out of that place singing the Hillel as he moves them to the mount there of the olives a place called Gethsemane just east of Jerusalem on the hillside he says to the disciples come on let's go over here and pray that was not uncommon for him they had seen him do that many, many times. They had asked him, and he had given them the instruction about how to pray. This was not unusual, but there was something different about this night. He says to Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, come closer with me and stay here. Watch, pray, and I'm going to go a little further into the garden and boy, did he ever have anguish in his prayer. You could hear him. It's not like the, the whole hillside would not have heard the echoes of his prayer because he was praying, oh, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And taking a break from that intensity of prayer, he comes back to where Peter James and John are and he looks to Peter and he says oh you're asleep I told you to watch and pray lest you fall into temptation and he goes back and he prays nearly the same thing Lord if it's possible let it be but I'm willing and he goes back and he finds Peter again asleep his eyes were so heavy he could not keep them focused and he fell asleep and that went on for three different exchanges until finally Jesus says, okay, enough. There will be a day for you to rest, but my hour has come. And those words probably pierced into Peter's soul like a hot brand iron that would sear him forever. And he heard those words, my hour is at hand and I asked you to pray. I think it's that that Peter is elevating to us. I think what he's saying, in the hour that I did not recognize and I did not pray, instead I rested. In that hour I missed it. And I'm telling you, in the history of redemption, this thing is drawing to an end. The end has come. It has already begun. So I'm encouraging you not to do what I did. I'm encouraging you to watch and pray. For the hour has come. So he's helping us in the moment of his greatest failure and weakness, he's helping us to not do the same, to recognize the hour in which we live. Now that brings us to the last point here, and that is 
confident that the end has begun, we must love one another earnestly. Let us love one another earnestly since the Lord is sure to come. Now, to love earnestly means that you are loving unfailingly. It's a, a really a stretched out love. It's beyond just what you might get by with. This is a determination of love. It's, it's a uh, love that you have to choose. And that kind of love will cover a multitude of sins. That's what Peter is saying here. This means that Christians who love actually have an eagerness to forgive people who sin. They look for the opportunities and they're even stretching to forgive people in their sin because they have love. So people who lack love are easily offended and they look for faults, not people who are loving. People who are loving are not easily offended and they are not looking for the faults of other people. They are loving and they're extending their love and they're expressing their love and they're free in their love. And people who don't love are quick to point out blame and hold a grudge and harbor unforgiveness, but not those who are loving. People who don't love fail to apply the same unconditional love that Christ has already given and demonstrated to them, continues to have to them, but they withhold that rather than letting it be a free-flowing source from their life to others. They hold back that love. And Peter is saying, knowing that the end is at hand, love earnestly, love fully. Not just because somebody treats you well, but when they don't treat you well, extend your love. That's earnest love. Proverbs states it pretty clearly in chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. I struggle here. I have a, I have a um, spiritual gift of discernment and of judgment and prophecy in that I see clearly God's word and I see it in black and white in contrast to maybe what my life is or other people's lives and in a, in a spiritual way that is so rich and so helpful but in a fleshly way it is so condemning and so judgmental and so the opposite of love you know every spiritual gift that God gives us there's a fleshliness to that that if you don't exercise in the things of the spirit you will turn that which was good that God gave you into something that's absolutely miserable this passage speaks to me let love be earnest in you Randy look for the opportunity even when you see sin look for the opportunity to love to love So those who understand that the end of all things is at hand recognize that they're about to spend eternity with all the saints who are around them, including all the sinners who become saints by confessing Christ as Lord. And if I look around this room and the choir behind me and I see people, I see people who I'm going to spend eternity with, and I'm going to tell you honestly, I can't wait to do that. Now, for some of you, I'm really grateful that God is going to redeem you fully and give you a glorified body, and then we'll spend eternity together. <laughs> but, uh, man, I can't wait to be in heaven with you. I can't wait for you to know me in heaven the way God 
has intended me to be all my life without sin. I can't wait for us to spend eternity together. And because that is true, then it ought to be that I exercise an extended love to you today. And the same for you. The way you treat your wife, the way you speak to your husband, the way you touch and discipline your children ought to be with earnest love. It's the training ground. Because if you learn to love in the household, then you can learn to love in the church house. And if you can learn to love in the house, in the church, then you can learn to love at work and in your neighborhood and in your community. And people who are very different from you, people who act differently than you, maybe people who live differently than you, you can learn to love because the Spirit of God is love and He dwells within you, pouring love in your heart. Love earnestly, he says. Now, one of the ways for us to show this is by loving not just the people who are close to us, but those who are far from us, different from us. We, we need not forget that Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are scattered all about modern Turkey. Turkey. 